All right, we are in this series called The Kingdom of God, and last week we talked about how God made us in his image. He created mankind in his image, and we said that there was a divine dignity to being made in the image of God. We're kind of drawing this this comparison to the popular series Stranger Things that talks about the upside down, except the way the series portrays it is that the normal life is the life that we experience on earth, and then there's this upside-down reality where everything is messed up. But I tried to explain last week, the reality we live in right now is actually the upside-down kingdom. It's the upside-down kingdom that's not right. It's not how things are supposed to be. It is not according to God's design. The chaos and destruction, devastation, division that we see in the world today is not how things are supposed to be. That was not what God had in mind from the beginning. He has something very different in mind. Everything in the world has been flipped on its head. And we said this quote uh, from Tolkien, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. So we're going to get to, that, to the beginning of that exile that we all experience, where we, we know there's something better. And you can see this in all the systems of the world that are, that are trying to call people to, to this kind of better existence. But apart from God's kingdom, they never arrive. They never get there. Everything falls short. But there is still this sense that there's something better than what we have right now. The right-side-up kingdom is the kingdom that God originally created back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And he made human beings, this is what we talked about last week, us, he made us people in his image, and we were to represent God to all of the world. And we were here for the, for the purpose of representing God, being God's image, God's likeness. We'll get into that word image a little bit next week on Easter Sunday. But we were to be God's image and likeness on the earth for the purpose of, of ruling and reigning over creation. Genesis 2, chapter 15 and 16 and 17, the Lord God took man, the Lord God, important note, uh, the Lord God, we'll get to that in just a minute, not just God, but the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God created mankind to rule over the garden, to rule over creation, that, that there was an order that God put in place and there would, be, there would be a thriving of creation under God's original design prior to the curse. But when, when humans take care of that created order, there is a thriving that cannot happen on its own. And, and you can see this if you know much about farming. Just like with grapes, you know, grapes can grow on their own, but, but if you, as, as a ruler and reigner over God's creation, take the care to build, to build a trellis and to prune them and, and to make sure that they're getting enough sun and enough water and the nutrients in the soil that they need, then they're going to flourish in a way that they won't on their own. So God created us to rule and reign over creation, primarily working the soil, working with hands. This is something we've tried to teach over the years, that work is a good thing. God designed us to work. We're made as, as human beings, we're made to work. And, and when, we are, when we are tempted not to work, that, that's not like that, that there's this, there's not a, uh, a reality in which 
We can just be lazy and, and sit on the couch and watch TV all day and find any kind of thriving. That is contrary to God's design. Now, that's what I would like to do. I would enjoy that. I would love to just sit around and watch HGTV all day long or watch old apocalyptic movies over and over and over again. But yeah, it gets boring. But God made us to work. And even though work now is hard because of what we're going to talk about today, it is still the good thing that God made us for, work. So when, you find, when you're out there gardening and farming and working with your hands and building things with your hands and you, you start to feel the sense of, there's something to this that I can't explain. Well, that's because that's, you're doing something that God made you to do. It's a divine activity. So that was last week. Today we're Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter with the triumphal entry. Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 21. I've got a whole lot of scripture for us this morning, so hang with me. Uh, but Matthew chapter 21 kind of paints a picture for us, helps us give a little bit of understanding. Uh, this, it's kind of a, 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 in media res. Anyone know what that means? In the middle of the action. I was guessing no one knew. So, um, so we're kind of going, we're jumping all the way ahead in the story into the middle of the action. We're going to come back to the beginning here in just a second. But this is Palm Sunday, Matthew chapter 21. Now when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Right away you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is significant about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey? What's significant about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. What was that? It was prophesied, yeah. So we just read that prophecy. So he's fulfilling a prophecy by riding in on a donkey. That's one good observation. What else do you notice? What, what's significant about Jesus entering on a donkey? Humble. Yeah, good. Yeah, so different translations in verse 5, they, they translate the, the word unassuming, which is what I read. Look, your king is coming to you unassuming. Your translation may say gentle. Look, your king is coming to you gentle and riding on a donkey or seated on a donkey. It may say meek. Look, your king is coming to you meek and seated on a donkey or lowly or humble. The English Standard Version translates it as humble. Look, your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey. This was different. This was a different entrance for a king. A, a king riding in and, and apparently, you know, setting himself up as the king over an area to set himself up as a ruler or a reigner would, would come in with, with at least an army 
would come in with at least, you know, some, some, some power behind the king to say, this is, this is my strength, this is who I am. And, and much like we might think of the armed forces parades, a king would do that and, and show his force. But other times would come in with fanfare and, and, and pageantry, and, and the king would enter into the town that they were taking possession of as, as the ruler and reigner in a very boisterous, loud, proud kind of a way. But Jesus enters in the opposite way. Jesus does the exact opposite. He does not come in with fanfare. He comes in humbly. Verse 6. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That word Hosanna, which we just sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Its literal meaning is God save us. God save us. But over time, it, 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 it started to encapsulate a cultural meeting, which was hail to the king. So the people who were shouting this phrase could have meant it in the literal way, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They might have been saying, God save us. They might have meant how they use it, but they might have been saying, hail to the king. Hail to the king who has come to rule and reign. Something significant was happening because they were paving the way for him and a vast crowd had gathered around and were laying down their garments for him to walk on. Immediately following this, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. And then for the last week of his life on earth, he goes and he teaches boldly about the kingdom of God. His teaching for the, his last week on earth is, is a, very, a very direct teaching on the kingdom of God. And you can read this uh, from Matthew chapter, uh, basically the last half of 21 all the way through to the crucifixion. You can see Jesus' teaching and you can go to John and, and read a lot of Jesus' teaching to the disciples in the upper room from chapter 12 all the way through uh, the crucifixion in uh, 19, I think, is when the trials are. And I would encourage you to do that this week as we go through Holy Week, preparing ourselves for Sunday. But Jesus came, and, and as they were shouting, God save us, hail to the King, he goes in, and the first thing he does is he, he, is he, he cleanses the temple from, from all of the, well, the curse that had started to have its effect on God's temple over the years. And that doesn't go over so well, and the religious leaders of the day start to seek an opportunity to get rid of Jesus once and for all. He was becoming a problem both for the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders, and both kingdoms become responsible for putting Jesus to death in the end. 
But his message, you can see a little bit of it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Jesus says, then they will, he's talking about the return of the Son of Man to set up his kingdom, which they thought was happening right now, but he was talking about a future date. He said, they will hand you over to be persecuted and kill you. You'll be hated by all the nations because of my name. Then many will be led into sin. And they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. That sounds like he's talking about right now. The many will be led into sin. They will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because, lawless, because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus says, but the person who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, literally, almost, almost literally the next day, Jesus would be hanging on a cross. What happened? What happened from, from the beginning where, where God made everything and, and, and it was all perfect and it was all good, how God said it, and now here we have Jesus, the Son of God, who comes to the earth and he takes on human form, and now Jesus, the Son of God, the one who, who is biblically going to rule and reign over all creation, now he's being executed, he's being crucified on a cross. Where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Where do you think? Yeah, good. The Garden of Eden, yeah. So now let's go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend some time here. I've got some stuff that really stood out to me this time as I was studying it uh, that, that I haven't really taught on before. I hope to really bring some clarity to our understanding of the two kingdoms. So right now there are two kingdoms at play in the world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the devil or the kingdom of Satan. And God has turned over the rule of this earth, of this world, we would call it. We'll explain that more later turned over the rule of this world to the prince of the air, that is, the devil. Well, this is the beginning of that, of that rule that God turned over to the devil. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, or some translations say, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I've talked a lot in the past about how, how the enemy was trying to tempt them with something that they already were. They already were like God, and yet he was trying to tempt them with something that they already were. 
Well, that, that phrase that I've harped on for years and years, did God really say, in the New English translation, it's a very a, a great translation, a very literal, accurate translation, the NET, if you want to look it up, says, is it true that God said? And I, I, I can already feel, feel a groan rising up within everyone as we start to think about, oh, is he going to talk about truth again? And I am, so this is a great day to be gathered here together, but is it true that God said? Is it true? Did God really say? Then he says, your eyes will be opened. Another way to translate this is that you will have understanding. You, you will, your eyes will be opened and you'll understand how things are. You will have an understanding of how things actually work. Well, up until this point in the story, all that Adam and Eve knew was God and what God said was good. That was all they knew. That was all they had experienced. Because of the negative consequence of death, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the only thing that could be seen as bad in this point, at this point. So the only thing that had a negative attachment to it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it said, if you eat of it, you will die. But everything else was good and it was God. It would also appear that until now, until this very moment in the garden, the only being that had spoken to Adam and Eve was God and whose image they were made. Now, there are, there are some old traditions, some Jewish traditions that say that the animals spoke. I happen to like that tradition. I think that's an interesting idea that all the animals talked in the garden before the curse and that because of the curse their mouths were shut. But uh, you can't prove that biblically from the text, so it's just a fun thing to think about and talk about, not something we can draw any application from. But would it, it would appear that Adam and Eve's primary conversation happened between each other and God. That was where the conversation happened. They had only heard and received instruction from someone who resembled them. So when they were talking to God, they were talking to the God in whose image they were made. So they were in the likeness of God whom they talked to. So when they were receiving communication from God, they were receiving someone who they looked like, they resembled in some way. And then along comes the serpent, who is more crafty than any of the wild animals. And I can't think of any creature that exists that looks less like a human being than a snake. I hate snakes. I do not like snakes. Now, I'm, I'm coming to appreciate some snakes on the farm because they eat mice. And we have a huge mouse problem, but we also have cats that we're, we're keeping for the purpose of hunting mice. That's the only reason you should have a cat, in my opinion. Now, I know a lot of you love cats, and I don't mean to offend you, but cats need to hunt mice. That is what God created. It's a whole circle of life thing. So, you know, when you're not letting them hunt mice, you're kind of robbing them from their, from their divine, divine intention. But um, I, know, I know we're not supposed, you know, it's like you're not supposed to talk about killing things at church, but that's how God created it. So, Maybe it's not. Maybe that's how the curse made it. I don't know, but cats seem to do a good job of hunting things. But I, I, don't, think it, I don't think there's any less desirable creature, you know, blood-pumping creature, than a snake on the planet. I think it's one of the worst things. Yeah, there are a lot of insects that I don't like, and, like, and arachnids, and spiders are awful, and I think I could do without spiders and all that. But snakes are, you know, 
There, there, there are snakes that are like 20, 30 feet long, like this big around. And their whole purpose is to, to wrap around you and squeeze you until you stop living. And then they can eat you. Like that is what a snake does. That is the, the snake's existence, right? I can't think of any creature that looks less like a human being than a snake. They're radically different. So why were they listening to someone that didn't look like God? That's a good question. Are we listening to people? Are we listening to voices that, that, that resemble God? Are we listening to voices that don't look like God at all? There's a wordplay here in the Hebrew between the words naked and shrewd. So in chapter 225, there's the word naked that is used. They were naked and not ashamed. And then the word shrewd in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. So back-to-back -back verses. The, the word for naked is arumen, A-R-U-M-M-I-M. And the word for shrewd, shrewd is arum, A-U-R-A-R-U-M. Same root word. And according to people who are a lot smarter than I am, the point seems to be that the integrity of the man and the woman is the serpent's uh, focus. So, so the, the serpent is focusing in on the integrity of the man and woman, and his shrewdness or his craftiness is going after that integrity. So the fact that they were naked and felt no shame was where the devil focused his attack. hard to imagine a world where we would feel no shame. And this word shame is not just the word for embarrassment as we might think of it today. It actually has a much deeper meaning and it, and it conveys a fear of exploitation or evil. That, that being ashamed because you're naked, being ashamed isn't, isn't just ashamed because you don't have clothes on, but there's a fear that, that you are going to be exploited for evil purposes by someone else. In fact, you can see this, you can see this throughout our history since this moment, that, that enemies are, are put to shame through military victory. So as the military comes in and conquers something, the, the, the army that loses is put to shame and oftentimes would become at least prisoners of war, if not servants of the new kingdom. There was a fear that you would be exploited for the purposes of the person who was conquering you. And it's the feeling of shame that comes with a fear of evil. So this is exactly where the enemy, that snake, the devil, pinpoints his attack. In the beginning, they were naked and felt no shame, shame and he was shrewd. He was crafty. He was cunning. He, he, he was able to, to work Adam and Eve in a way that, that they didn't know that they were being worked. And we know people like that in the world today. But when they take the serpent's advice, they will end up covering and hiding in shame, and the serpent will be cursed. Now, I said there's something interesting here, that there's this, there's this distinction between the use of the, of the word God, Elohim, and the word Yahweh in, in chapters 2 and 3. So, 
uh, Yahweh or Jehovah is used 11 times in Genesis chapter 2. And, and it's used the Lord God, the Lord God. So, so it's Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim. So it's the Lord God. And you see that, that the relationship between Adam and Eve and God was Lord God. Lord God. And that, that goes all the way through uh, to, to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. And then once the serpent starts talking, the Lord goes away. And for the next eight verses, while the serpent is leading the discussion, it's no longer Jehovah or Yahweh God. It is just God. See, there's no covenantal relationship between the serpent, between the devil, and God. There is no lordship between the devil and God. There's no, there's no relationship of submission and serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, so he only speaks of Elohim, not Yahweh or Jehovah. Elohim. And in doing this, he, he uses some of his craftiness and, and, his, and his cunning to, to draw the woman, Eve, into his way of thinking about God because he's talking about God. And if he's talking about God, well, then he must know God. He must know something about God that I don't know. So he's talking about God. So certainly there's there's a good reason to listen to him or to listen to anyone who talks about God. And he draws her in to his thinking about God so that she too only says Elohim and not Jehovah Elohim. But concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the, gourd, uh, middle of the orchard, God said... That's what Eve said. But concerning the fruit, that, the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the orchard, Elohim said, she left out Jehovah. I've talked a lot about the enemy's tactics over the year of, of ideas and isolation. There's another one here that I, that I want to pay attention to. It's, it's the cunning attack. The enemy's attacks are never bald-faced lies. We know that. I think we understand that, that, that the enemy never comes at us with a bald-faced lie and just tries to get us to believe this lie outright from the very beginning, right? That's not how Satan works. He is shrewd. He's crafty. He's cunning. As, as Jesus would describe him in John chapter 8, 44, he, he calls him the father of lies. He's the originator of the language of lies, and he's been speaking his native tongue of deception for millennia. So he is really, really good at deceiving people. He's shrewd. The devil is not just a liar, but he's a deviator. The devil is a deviator. Any slight turn away from God's word and God's work will work for the devil. The devil doesn't need to get you to just turn all the way around right now. Like that's, just, that's not what the devil needs. He doesn't need you to go from following God to following him, the devil and the kingdom of this world. He just needs you to turn one degree off. And one degree off, you're not following God anymore. You're following something else. Right? right? In a circle of 360 degrees, there's one degree that's following God, and then there's 359 degrees that aren't. 
The devil is a deviator. He just wants to get us to deviate a little bit away from God's plan. He, he doesn't need us to deviate entirely. Eventually he can get us there. Oftentimes he does. But any slight turn from God's course will work. He says, and, and you can see this in the, in the Hebrew, that there's actually an emphasis that is put on this word when he quotes it back to Eve. When, when the serpent says, you will not surely die. It's a direct quote. It's a direct quote from Yahweh in uh, 2.17. You will not surely die. That's, but he's questioning, you will not surely die. And the emphasis is on that word, surely. Surely you're not going to die. I mean, do you, do you really think that God is going to kill you? Surely you won't die. Surely, surely God isn't going to put you to death for eating a piece of fruit. Certainly. I mean, be reasonable, Eve. What kind of God would, would kill someone for eating a good-looking piece of fruit like that? After all, he put you in the orchard to take care of the garden. He, he put you here to care for the trees and, and to care for the fruits and everything in the garden. Why wouldn't he want you to enjoy the fruits of all the trees that you're taking care of. I mean, didn't he give you authority over every living thing? Well, this is a living thing. The tree, the knowledge of good and evil, it's alive. It's alive and it's growing and it's producing fruit. You won't surely die. What is the devil saying here? What do you think? What do you think the devil is saying here when he's saying, you will not surely die? He's saying a lie. Good. Saying that God lied to you. You'll be more like God if you break God's rules, if you do this. Yeah. God's holding back. Yeah, God, God's keeping something from you. There, there's a better life for you that God doesn't want you to have. Good. What else? What's the devil saying here? It's okay to disobey. Appealing to human logic, you can figure this out for yourself. You don't need God's help to understand this. Will Adam and Eve actually die because they ate the fruit? Eventually. Could it be that, that what the devil is saying here is that there really is no penalty for sin. What the devil was trying to do was he was trying to lure them into disobeying God, to rebelling against God. 
He's saying, you won't surely die because you ate a piece of fruit. There, there is no, there, there's no worry. You're not going to die because you sin against God. I mean, God wouldn't do that. He just made you, and he made this whole creation. There's no, there are no consequences for breaking God's rules. I mean, you, you can do what you want. God's not going to punish you for being who you are, right? It's like, it's like you be you. This is something that really stood out to me for, for the first time going through this text is that his deception is not just to get us to rebel against God. His deception is actually to get us to, 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 not, to, to disbelieve the consequences of our rebellion. Right? There's a, the half-truth in what he's saying because Adam and Eve don't actually physically die as a result of this disobedience, but there is a death that enters the human race as a result of this decision to rebel against God. God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. When you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will experience something other than what you were created for. You will experience a death. You will experience a spiritual death. In fact, you, some scholars even argue what, what is being communicated here is that you will become mortal. By eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see what happens in the rest of the story. They get kicked out of the garden. They're excommunicated from God's garden. And the reason that God kicks them out is because he says, we need to get them out of the garden before they eat from the tree of life, lest they take from it and live forever as cursed people. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. This desire for wisdom and understanding is, is a great desire in our time. We talk a lot about it. There is wisdom. There is a biblical wisdom. Um, I, I think you could argue that the need for wisdom prior to the Prior to the rebellion, there wasn't one. You didn't need to know the difference between the, the my basic understanding of wisdom is the knowing the difference between good and evil, knowing what God says is good and what God says is evil. That's the primary need for wisdom. If you just have good and God, you don't need wisdom because you just have good and God. But it's easy, especially in the world that we live in today, it's easy on this course towards wisdom and understanding to find ourselves deviating by a degree or two in one direction or the other. And we might, we might even find ourselves on, on one topic, you know, going off in this direction by one degree and, and then in another topic going off into another degree in the opposite direction. It's easy when we're pursuing wisdom and understanding to, to deviate from God's course in a world that is saturated with misunderstanding, in a world that is saturated with half-truths and, and even full-on blatant lies that contradict God's word. It's easy, it's so easy when they're being shouted and screamed in every direction from every source and everything that you can possibly imagine. It's so easy to find ourselves deviating a degree at a time away from God's wisdom and understanding. But here is a foundational truth of Genesis chapter 3. 
No one can become like God by disobeying God. It is impossible for us to become more like God, the God who made us in his image. It is impossible for us to become like God by disobeying God. There is no utopia in which the whole world works as though we think it should work. There is no utopia that exists in which all of the systems that are fighting for power and control in our world right now, and you see this on a, almost a minute-by-minute basis, the fight for power and control and domination of the headlines and domination of the narrative that is going on in all of our sources of media, there is no utopia that they can project that will actually ever happen because they are too many degrees of deviation away from God's design. There's too much rebellion in those systems. There's too much personal power and personal pleasure and personal desire in those systems that it's not possible for those, any of them, to lead us to God's utopia that he has in mind. So when we're pursuing wisdom and understanding, we have to be very careful It wasn't just rebellion that was the problem in the garden. I've harped and harped and harped on rebellion and that it was Adam and Eve that rebelled against God in the garden. I've talked about how they wanted to do it their way, my way, and we played that that song from Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? Remember that? I don't know if you remember us playing that song, but that's kind kind of the theme song of the rebellion. But it's not just wanting to do things your own way. It's also when this this desire for this desire for uh, gaining understanding and wanting to understand things in our own way, that's the problem. This is why I have a problem with two phrases, two trigger phrases for me, you know, my way and my truth. If you, want a, if you want a good lecture for me, especially that my truth, use that phrase my truth on me in a conversation. And I'll be glad, to, uh, be glad to give you my 75-point lecture on why there's no such thing as my truth. Sin is saying those two things. I want to do it my way, and I want to have my own truth, my own good and evil, my own right and wrong. I want to be able to define for myself what is right and for wrong, and I want to be able to do things in the way that I think. So at this point in the story, when the, when the woman sees that the tree is produ- you know, has good fruit, good for food, attracted to the eye, and with the serpent interacting, what do you think is happening here? What's happening in this moment, in this confrontation between the serpent and Adam and Eve? What's happening? He's becoming believable. The serpent is becoming believable. Beginning of spiritual warfare. Yeah. Beginning of deviation from God's ways. Maybe somebody else. Have some. Yeah, mixing truth and lies together so you get these half-truths so it feels like there's some truth to them. Yeah. 
Anyone else? Shad says, why is this tree even here? Asking Eve, why is the tree even there, Eve, if God didn't want you to eat from it? I believe we're right. All the things that we've said are right. But right now at this moment, what's happening here in this moment, Adam and Eve's only paradigm, you understand what I mean by paradigm, right? a, a way of thinking that's paradigm. Adam and Eve's only way of thinking or only paradigm is a world in which God rules and reigns. That's all they know. All that Adam and Eve know is the world in which God rules and reigns, and he made them to rule and reign over creation. They know nothing else. Everything around them was good, and it was just as God had intended it. That is, that is all they knew. The devil has a different paradigm. The devil knew that there was only one way out of this reality, only one way out of this paradigm that existed for Adam and Eve. There was only one exit from, from this utopia that God had created in the garden. There was only one door through which Adam and Eve could come out of God's kingdom and into his kingdom. There was only one exit from the kingdom of light. There is only one way for the devil to lead them into the darkness, and that was by getting them to go their own way and choose their own truth. They were pursuing the, the desire you see in Genesis 3. You can see that the desire for the fruit, the third part of it is that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Eve chose to eat of the fruit because she wanted the wisdom that would come from eating the fruit. She would want to know for herself what is good and evil. So the only way out of the kingdom of light and into the kingdom of darkness is to go my way and by my truth. It's to rebel against God's truth and God's leadership. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth. There's so many pictures of the kingdom of God throughout Scripture, we don't have nearly enough time to cover them all. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of light, where the kingdom of the, de of the devil, of the enemy, is the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth, and the kingdom of the devil is the kingdom of lies. The, the, the realm in which the devil rules and reigns is the kingdom of lies and deception. There are only two kingdoms. Right now it might feel like there are many, many kingdoms, and as you look at all the different things that seem to be opposed to God's rule and reign around creation, it seems like there are many, many kingdoms, but there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, which is about following God, letting God be God, letting him be the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God of our lives, submitting and surrendering our lives to him, and there's everything else. There's following other gods, there's following other idols, and there's following ourselves. It might seem like we even have millions of different kingdoms around the world today because we have so many people claiming they have their own truth. But the truth is, it's all a part of the devil's kingdom. And I know that's a hard truth. I don't want to set us up as though we're opposed to the people who have been deceived by the enemy's tactics. I need to make it clear. There are the people who have been deceived by the enemy's tactics are not to be fought 
They truly are victims of deception. And we don't need to position ourselves as though we're better and higher than those who, who have bought into the lies because not only did we buy the lie hook, line, and sinker just like every other human being on the planet has, there are still parts of our lives where we have bought the lie and we're clinging to the lie and we think that this is the way it's supposed to be even though it's contrary and contradictory to God's plan and path for our lives. We have no ground to stand on if we are trying to elevate ourselves. We must follow the example of our humble king who enters in the most humble of ways to rescue the victims of the devil's deception. When the woman saw that the tree, I'm almost done. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit and was good for food, good for food was attractive to the eye and was desirable for making one wise. We've talked a lot about that how there's a connection there between the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in 1 John chapter 2, I think it is. You can go look that up later and tell me if I had the wrong number. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, attracted to the eye, desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then... Ironically, the devil knew something. There was a little bit of truth in what he was saying. Then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. By the way, it's interesting, the phrase produce fruit that was, so... Um, uh, beginning of, of chapter 6. I find this interesting. The little, little bunny trail, sorry. But when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, the phrase produced fruit that was is not in the original text. It's implied, but it's not there. So what, what, it, what is written in Hebrew is that when the woman saw the good food or when the woman saw the delicious food. I thought that was interesting. God intended it to be this way. Chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. There were, there were the, the, in the garden all kinds of trees that were pleasing to look at and good for food. But when we use our physical eyes in isolation from our spiritual eyes, when we use our physical eyes in isolation from our kingdom eyes, our, our eyes that by faith, we're going to talk a lot about in the next couple of weeks, our eyes that by faith see the world as though it's the kingdom of God in the here and now where God's will is starting to be accomplished through the church on the earth, when we see the world with our spiritual eyes, our kingdom eyes, and our physical eyes, then we have the ability to, to, to work and navigate through the world as though as God intended. But when we see only with our our physical eyes, that, that there is a tree that's growing fruit and it looks good for food and nothing else, it's easy to be drawn into the darkness. It's easy to, to move the focus from the purpose that God originally designed us for to pleasure. See, up until this point, Adam and Eve existed in the garden for the purpose that God created them there, that, that they would be the rulers and reigners over the garden, caring for the garden that God had created. That was their purpose, and they saw the garden through the eyes of their purpose. But the enemy came along, and he got them to look at the garden through the eyes of pleasure. 
purpose has a divine design to it where we are surrendering to God's design for our lives. Pleasure is all about me, myself, what I want in this moment. Yes, they could eat the fruits of the garden, but that was not their purpose. They could look around the garden, they could eat almost anything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they were not put there to eat. That's not why God created them. They weren't put there to reap the harvest. They were put there to create the flourishing. And the devil brings all of their focus away from their purpose and onto the fruit itself, and he distracts them from their purpose with pleasure, and it worked. Verse 10, the man replied to God, who says, where are you? He says, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Never really stood out to me how much of a flip this statement is. There was no fear in their relationship with God until this moment. There was no reason that Adam had ever been afraid of God. And yet once they rebelled, once they disobeyed, once they went their own way and they wanted their own truth, once they embraced the deception and the deviations of the enemy, all of a sudden they go from being in this trusting relationship with God where everything is as it should be and the entire thing gets flipped upside down and now God is walking in the garden. And when Adam hears God walking in the garden, he hides because he's afraid. He's never been afraid before, let alone afraid of his creator that made him in his image. Adam is terrified. Why is he terrified? Remember shame. Shame is not just the idea of being embarrassed. It's afraid of being taken advantage of. Somehow something had happened in this rebellion where in Adam's mind he went from trusting God to now being afraid that God would take advantage of him. His mind was broken. His thinking of God completely corrupted. And now he's afraid of God in a way he never should have been to begin with. There is a fear of God that has to do with reverence and awe. There is a biblical fear of God that we must embrace and understand and lean into. But there is a fear of God that has also been affected by the curse where we are afraid of God because we think he wants to take advantage of us. There is a fear of God that has been a cancer in our society where, where it says that God wants to use us, God wants to manipulate us, God wants to take advantage of us against our will. He has no good desires for us. He only wants to use us to benefit himself and his kingdom. He's an insecure, jealous God, and we should not want to be a part of him. And that is a lie and a cancer that has swept throughout all of humanity for thousands and thousands of years. But that is not God's design. That's the upside down. This is the upside down kingdom. This is the upside down kingdom where we see God as perpetrator instead of as creator. It's where we see God as an evil dictator instead of as a loving leader. This is where we live. We live in this upside down. 
We live in a world dominated by upside-down, me first, my way, my truth thinking. We live in a world with an upside-down view of God, with an upside-down view of pleasure, and an upside-down view of truth. Everything around us is upside-down. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sin and rebellion against God and seeking our own understanding came at a price. And the enemy deceived Adam and Eve in the garden because the price of rebellion and the price of seeking our own truth is death. There is death in the world that came as a result. There was a cost, a high price. This cost, it cost the human race intimacy with God. It costs the human race immortality, even though we long for it, even though there's this longing in us that feels like we were made for more than just a few years or here on earth. It cost us that immortality. It created separation from God and brought all manner of evil into the world. And it doesn't take long. You can see it in the very next chapter. Evil is in the world. Brother killing brother. The world suffered a spiritual death and since that time has been under the rule and reign of the kingdom of death. And that's one of the other contrasts of kingdoms in the Bible. The kingdom of the devil, the upside-down kingdom, is the kingdom of death, and the kingdom of God is the kingdom of life. We were under the rule and reign of the kingdom of death until this week, almost 2,000 years ago, a humble king entered in an upside-down way and he came into this kingdom of death and he submitted himself, though he deserved it not, to the death of this world. And just like through the devil's attempt to get us to rebel against God, there was only one way out of the kingdom of light. Through Jesus' death on the cross, there's only one way back into the kingdom of light and that's through his flesh. The humble king entered the kingdom of death and through his death created an escape for us from the prison of the kingdom of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to see the war that has been going on around us the war that seems to be raging at the moment is not a new war. It's the war that started back in the garden. And the twists and the deviations that so many of us have embraced and, and, and believed on and what seems like minute levels have really become cancerous to the soul of so many followers of Christ. I pray, Father, that you really help us to see and understand your kingdom in a new and fresh way. That the kingdom of God is not just a kingdom that is built on what God says is right and wrong and where, where God is the ruler that we, we serve and surrender to. But that the only kingdom where there is true thriving, the only kingdom where there is any kind of joy, where there is any kind of satisfaction, where there is any kind of fulfillment, is the kingdom of God where God's will rules and reigns. Not our will, not the will of other spiritual forces that are in opposition to God. 
I pray, Father, as we go throughout this week and this day, give us fresh eyes to see the effects of the kingdom of death, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the prince of this air, of the air that is at work in the, in the hearts of those who are disobedient all around us. Give us the ability to not only see his work, but to have a deeper, deeper compassion for those who have been deceived by his tactics and a deeper compassion that moves us to get involved in their lives at a deeper level so that we may be a part of leading them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light for your glory and for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.